Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Art House Garage, the snob-free film podcast where we make art house indie and classic cinema accessible to the masses. I'm your host, Andrew Sweatman, and today we are kicking off season four of the podcast, which we are calling the Art House Starter Pack. This is designed to be an entry point into art house movies. If you are someone who has always wanted to know more about art house cinema, this is the place to start. In this episode, we are going to discuss a film from 1953 from Japanese director Yasujiro Ozu. The film is called Tokyo Story. The rest of season four has more great titles, including next from 1957, we will be looking at Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. And then fast forwarding to 1979, the film Stalker from Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky. After that, we will look at 1985's Vagabond from French auteur Agnes Varda. Then we'll look at 1993's Blue from the Three Colors trilogy by Polish director Krzysztof Koslowski. And finally, from 2011, we will discuss The Tree of Life from American director Terrence Malick. Over these six episodes, we will be joined by my good friend, Andrew Camarillo. He's a filmmaker, photographer, and cinephile, and he's the person in my life that I always think of when it comes to artsy movies. He has helped pick out these movies, some of which are new to me, and I can't wait to dig into them over the next several weeks. Just before we get into Tokyo Story, I thought we'd say hi to Andrew and find out what he's been watching lately. So hello, Andrew. Thanks so much for joining the podcast for this season. How are you and what have you been watching lately? Hi, Andrew. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, yeah I, I've been watching um, quite a bit of TCM with my mom nice. and um, we are uh, we've recently watched Casablanca and um also, the Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, nice! Um, I've never seen that. Yeah, it, it's I really enjoy it. Um, but yeah, I mostly uh, I think the golden age of Hollywood cinema is yeah. mostly what we've been watching recently, which has been really fun and enjoyable for me. Well, that's great. Yeah. So my recent, my previous guest on the last six episodes was Rance Collins, who has done a lot of work for TCM, and we of course talked about classic movies, including Casablanca. So this really is starting to sound like a TCM commercial, but TCM is great. So I'm I'm happy <laughs> yes. with that. Um, yeah, Casablanca is so good, and I had uh, seen it before, but then I rewatched it recently for this uh, podcast episode a few weeks ago, and it's so good. It's such a powerful um, piece of history as well as cinema. Yeah, definitely. Great. What have you been watching recently? Yeah, um, I finally caught up with, um, it's from 2019, it's a more modern film. It's uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Um, I had wanted to watch it because it was all the rage last year, it sounded like, and then finally hit Hulu uh, a few weeks ago, and oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. Have you seen that movie yet? I have not. I've actually wanted to see the film, but I haven't uh, been able to yet. Um, yeah, would you? It sounds like you really enjoyed it. Yes, absolutely recommend it. It's um, it's so it's about it's a love story, basically a kind of forbidden love kind of a story. Um, but it's uh, one of the characters is a painter, and so she's always looking at the, the people she's painting, and a lot of it is. Um, I mean, it's just shot as if it could be a painting. Every every frame of it really is magnificently beautiful, and um, yeah, it, it's it's about art and it's about um, different perceptions of works of art. Um, it, it's really amazing. It's it's I could feel like I could watch it ten more times too, and and hopefully I'll I will revisit it pretty soon because it really uh, is a great one. So I'll recommend that. That's great. <laughs> yeah, I I will definitely have to watch that. Well, all right. Without further ado, then, let's go ahead and get into today's movie, Yasujiro Ozu's Tokyo Story. All right, let's talk about Tokyo Story. So this was my first time to watch this movie. Uh, Andrew, how many times have you seen Tokyo Story, roughly? 
Um, I would say maybe seven, wow. eight times, yeah. something like that. Uh, also, I've, I've watched it um, twice for this and almost three times. So almost oh. four <laughs> times just for the body. Yes, but uh, probably three to four times, maybe four four times, I think, before this. Yes, that's great. So you'll be better prepared than me. I so we were talking before this, but I, I almost do this podcast just as an excuse to watch another movie because I have young kids. I don't have a ton of time on my hands. So I thought, well, if I have to do a podcast about it, I'll definitely watch it. And this is one that I've always wanted to watch um, just as I knew it was a kind of a, a big name in the art house world uh, for, first of all, Ozu, but then also Tokyo Story. And um, yeah. it's and this podcast is also becoming... Um, Andrew catches up on films that movie fans should watch because there's so many things I'm like, well, I can't believe I've never seen that. And this is one of them. So I was really happy to finally watch it. I've just seen it the once, but I really thought it was a very beautiful movie. Um, so I guess let's talk a little bit about um, Ozu. And so he's, again, he's a big name in uh, cinema history. He's Japanese. And um, yeah, let's, I guess, talk a little bit about the movie. So Tokyo Story um, is... Would you say it's his most famous work or his most significant work? Yes, uh, I, I would. Um, in Sight and Sound, uh, the um, critics' poll for Sight and Sound 2012 and the directors' poll both had Tokyo Story in the top five films uh, ever made. I think the directors' poll had it first and the critics' poll had it third behind Citizen Kane and Vertigo. Wow. Um, but yeah, I would say it's his most uh, popular and well-known work. Um, I um, I think Late Spring is probably a close second. Yeah. Um, but Tokyo Story is probably the most um, most well-known. Yeah. So that's the other title I'm most familiar with. The name of is Late Spring. Uh, have not seen it, but this is my first Ozu that I've actually watched. But I know mm. he also has a series um, that it, the title ends with sort of but ellipsis. So I know there's a I was born, but Da, da, da. Right. Um, and yeah. then a handful of others with that same kind of title construction. Uh, so I guess it's sort of about kind of growing up. Um, and mm. so what I've observed and what I've read a little bit, it seems like he's very interested in kind of generational conflict or divide or just kind of how aging and different generations affect each other. And that, that definitely is a big part of this movie today. So is that something that he's always kind of done? Yes, I, I think so. Um, in his early period, in 1927, he made his uh, first film. And that film, I believe, was the only film that wasn't set in contemporary times. Mm-hmm. Um, he made 54 films in his um, wow. his life, and I think 53 were contemporary. And they almost all of them dealt with generational conflict, generational change, mm-hmm. uh, the passage of time, and Japanese society going through... Um, the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and I guess, yeah, the early part of the 60s. His last film, um, An Autumn Afternoon, was uh, made in 1962, and he actually died in 1963 on his birthday at the age of 60. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, so I guess let's let's jump into Tokyo Story. So this one came out in 1953, so I guess it's kind of in the middle of, or maybe towards the end of his, uh, his filmography. Um, but he, so, so what this movie is about is basically, um, it opens with, um, an older married couple, uh, and they live in a small village or maybe a smaller city into, in uh, Japan. Um, and then they, they're planning a trip. So they're going to go to Tokyo to see their, their adult children. Um, and they have four children, I believe. Is that right? Um, yes. Four children. Yes. Uh, three of whom live in the city. And then one lives back at home in the in the smaller city with them. That's the three live in Tokyo, and then one lives back at home. Correct. Uh, I think that two live in Tokyo. One lives in, um, I believe, Osaka or oh. in a, another city. I think he's the train um, the train worker, or he works yes. for the train company. And then the youngest lives at home. Yes, that's right. So there's the one at home. Good deal. Uh, and so, yeah, that's right. One of their children, we we learned pretty early on, also has passed on, has uh, died in the war, the recent war, um, mm. which was World War Two, correct? Yes. Yeah. So they um, they take the train, and you see some of the you know just challenges of um, older people traveling and that kind of thing, uh, and then they get there and they 
Uh, you also, before they arrive, you see the, the grown children, one of their homes, um, and they have young kids of their own, and uh, they're sort of stressed out a little bit as, as they, they're preparing for these guests to come. And um, basically then they're there, and we, we watch their interactions, and um, we see some really sweet moments between them. We see some awkwardness and some tension. And then as the story goes on, um, it just becomes more and more clear that these people are just in different places in their lives. And um, that really does lead to some some conflict. Uh, they try to, um, uh, I guess a few of the major plot points is that the, uh, the, the mother and father, older mother and father, at one point, the, their kids say, you know, you can't stay with us tonight because we have guests or, or we have a, a work thing. Anyway, there's some some awkwardness there and they end up sending them to a hotel and the hotel is loud and they can't sleep. And so there's some uh, generational tension there as well. Um, and then yeah. I won't tell the very ending of the movie. I think we can hold that part back as a spoiler free move, but um, it, it goes to a place that's really... Uh, pretty emotional uh, with all of it so yeah that's i guess that's kind of a major overview i didn't get very specific there are there any other um you think important plot points that should be brought up um i i think that the role of the daughter-in-law um you mentioned the son yeah. who had died in the war um yes. her role in the film i think is very key in um her relationship with um her uh, parent-in-laws um in traditional Japanese society, um, if a woman is, um, w widowed, mm. she is still part of the family of, um, her husband, uh, her husband's family. So she in some way is connected with the family in a more intimate way th than, and I would say American society. Mm. And, um, in the film, the parents do tell her that they would like for her to be remarried and they want her to be happy, mm. but mm. she seems in a way, uh, kind of in between worlds uh, kind of like on a in a on a bridge in some way between the past and the present and the future um she seems to be nostalgic or sentimental in some way but also wanting to be kind of loyal to the family and then also potentially looking forward to um a life where she finds another love or just gets to kind of move forward in her life because i think at this time the her husband has been uh missing in action i believe for eight years so eight years passed away um so i think her role is very important because of the care she provides and the genuine um, and authentic dynamic she has with the parents yeah where she's not even a blood relative and then the actual um children of the parents at least the two oldest i believe are really um seem sort of unconcerned with some of their um preferences and don't seem to be very happy that they're there or enthusiastic about it. It seems more like an obligation or a chore for them to take care of them or to yeah. show them around. Yeah, I think, I think that's really true. And, I, and she ends up being my, I don't know, my favorite scenes are seem to be the ones with her uh, because that dynamic is so interesting, specifically with the, her mother-in-law, um, which I guess we should mention some actors' names here. So um, who are the, the, the older parents? Uh, what are their the actors' names for those? Yes. Uh, Shishu uh, Ryu is the uh, dad. He's the father. Mm -hmm. um, he is in many of Ozu's films um, in major roles and minor roles and choice roles and, you know, very marginal roles. Um, his screen time's you know, enormous or incredibly small. Um, mm -hmm. And in a way, he seems to stand in for Ozu um, mm -hmm. in many of the films. And the German director, Wim Wenders, actually calls um, Shishu the um, the kind of universal father of uh, cinema. Mm -hmm. He seems to, like, almost like the archetype of the father, according to Wim Wenders. And because yeah. we, we actually see him age and he plays the role of a father or grandfather um, early in his career. And he is actually only a few months younger than Ozu. So I think he was born in 1904. Mm -hmm. And he is working in uh, as an actor in his 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. And he actually goes on to work, I think, into almost his 80s um, after wow. Ozu has passed away. But in many films, he is uh, the father or the grandfather. And we, we see the transitions of... Um, 
him as a young father and then growing older and older uh, and having generations after him. And we, we actually get to see um, a person age and age in their role um, mm, wow. over almost a lifetime, which is really amazing. And of course, not playing himself, but playing um, different characters. Um, yeah, that's really amazing. Of all the, the actors in this, he was the one that felt familiar. I haven't looked through to see where I might have seen him before, but he, he felt uh, like I'd seen him in something else. Um, yeah, he's, he's, I think his performance is really moving in this. Um, yeah, and who plays the, the mother? The mother is uh, Chikiyawe Igashiyama. Um, she is, I think, excellent in the film as well. And um, I'm, I'm very moved by her performance, particularly her uh, interactions with her husband, mm. played by uh, Ryu, and then um, the daughter-in-law, who is played by uh, uh, Setsuko Hara, which uh, is, was considered, I think, the Greta, the Greta Garbo, I believe, of Japanese cinema. Mm, okay. um, so she's... I, I believe she's considered one of the most um, iconic Japanese film act- actresses from that time period. Mm, wow. Yeah, she's fantastic as well. Um, let's. I guess let's talk about some of our favorite kind of moments or themes that we picked up on. Um, so, I mean, I guess the major theme is that, that generational... Um, it's conflict at times, but just the divide, like the disconnect that uh, felt really familiar in some ways. And, um, you know, when you're dealing with your parents who are couple generations older than you there's just some natural uh disconnect there and this movie really captured that in a way that i thought was really uh powerful um there's a, a line so, so first of all i thought it was great that it's not just these older parents with their grown children but we also see some um tension between the the children and their own children so the grandkids so yeah. which are her young kids and um they they are a little bit um I don't know, willful or and mouth off a little bit. And then the grandparents are just um, saying, oh, kids are kids, are kids, you know. And so there's that kind of feeling in, in the movie as well. Um, and then actually one of the, I, I think my favorite scene in the whole thing um, is the scene between the grandmother and the grandchild. And uh, they're out on a hill and there's a really beautiful shot of them up on this grassy hill. And uh, she's... Um, just kind of talking at him, kind of um, speaking very poetically, and he's just playing. Uh, and she says, uh, I wonder if you'll become a doctor like your father. And he says, by the time you become a doctor, I wonder if I'll still be here. And so she just has that that big overview of, of her life that, um, you know, he's going to have his own life, and she may not see much of it as she gets older. And um, yeah, I found that really, really beautiful and moving. Um, that's a that's a great scene. Um, then, yeah, I wrote in my notes here too, just the burden of aging parents, and so that's to to a certain degree they're responsible for taking care of their parents, and so you you feel that tension too as they they kind of bicker between themselves, and um, yeah, it it does feel like as you mentioned almost um, an obligation more than something they're excited to do because they have their lives and. Um, and they even talk about that. The parents talk about, you know, these, these kids, they have jobs, they have lives, they, um, they have things they have to do. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really great. Uh, I have another, another favorite line I was looking for. Uh, oh yeah, there's a, there's a great scene where, um, the father is, uh, he ends up at a bar and he's drinking with some old friends who he hasn't seen in a really long time. And there's these three older guys and they're talking about, I think they're very drunk and they're talking about their children and how I really got a sense of how much their, the way their children turned out affects them. Um, and how, uh, one of them says that he lies to people about his son's job because he's, he wishes his son had a more prestigious job. Um, and they say, oh, you wish you're lucky your kids are better than mine and, and all this. And that's, you know, I've never been that age and I've never had, you know, kid, grown kids or grandkids. And so it was um, eye opening for me that, you know, that may be mm-hmm. something that our older generations feel pretty commonly um, is that kind of um, feeling about your, your own kids and how they, I don't know, turned out. Another line in that, I think in that scene is, um, talking about, uh, I, I can't remember what exactly the context is, but he says, a married daughter is like a stranger. And so he's just commenting on um, his daughter's gone and getting married, and now she has her own family, and she 
it's just not the person that he remembers when they were growing up uh i thought that was a really yeah. potent and emotional line too so yeah those are some of my some of my favorite moments there too uh what about you um yes i wanted to say uh shushu uh ryu um during the scene you were speaking of when his friend uh is uh speaking to him about the disappointment in a way uh of mm-hmm. his child not um having a more prestigious job Shishu kind of says, well, should we expect that much, much of our children? He mm-hmm. acknowledges that he does feel at times a bit disappointed that his um, son, who is a doctor, has not is just a neighborhood doctor. Mm-hmm. But yeah. then he says, Tokyo is crowded and maybe, you know, we have our expectations are too high, you know, for our kids. Mm-hmm. There's this kind of ambivalence in uh, Ryu, which is um, very evident that he there is this want for more, but then also this. Um, realization and and acknowledgement that maybe he shouldn't and also it's not his role to do that it's his son's life in a way and there is that the feeling of ambivalence between wanting more and expecting something of your children but also realizing they are themselves and their own being and you have to let let it go and there's kind of this acceptance that I think happens in a lot of um, Ozu and I think we may speak about it later but in the film um, there's this 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 um this sadness, but this there's this acceptance of life mm-hmm. and making doing what one can with uh, the environment or the situation that one finds oneself in. I think it's uh, yeah. it's very powerful. This sort of um, resolute sad- sadness, but this mm-hmm. this um, it's this strength in this acknowledgement as well. I think. Yeah, it kind of captures the the beauty and the tragedy that's just always going to be there for family relationships and yeah yeah and both so strongly that's really beautiful that those I will, coexist yeah yes I, I was sorry i was going to say that also um in uh watching this film um i watched it with uh my girlfriend uh vanessa marie which mm-hmm. is um she uh she and i watched this film and she provided i think some really good insights for me and what mm-hmm. i mentioned earlier um about the daughter-in-law being sort of the bridge mm-hmm. uh, kind of between the idea of the past, which is maybe can be represented by the, um, the parents, the older couple. Mm-hmm. And then the kind, and then her, um, her um, brother and sister-in-law who are kind of in Tokyo working very hard career oriented mm-hmm. and looking towards sort of the future and kind of involved in like this productivity and efficiency, this way of life that kind of loses some of the past. Mm-hmm. She's sort of, working in herself in this sort of um, feeling of wanting to move forward, but also wanting to hold on to something of the past. There's this nostalgia in some way. Um, So I think that's really interesting. Her character, um, I'm drawn to her character as well in the sense of she seems to be the one trying to work through Mm -hmm. the the dichotomy, the the difficulties of the modern world while also retaining some... Mm -hmm some connections to the past and memory and um, her, her dead husband and these old, this, this older couple um, that are her parents, parent-in-laws. So her in-laws. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's really uh, amazing. And um, the favorite scene for Vanessa and she pointed this out and I really liked the scene and when I re-examined it and I was like, yeah, this was amazing. When um, the couple is uh, in autonomy for the, there are the hot springs. It's when the, um, the their children send them off to kind of get away from mm-hmm. Tokyo to kind of get out mm-hmm. of their hair to yeah. um to to be away um when they're on the near the beach and mm-hmm. they mm-hmm. are on the walkway and there's this uh recognition between the two they had just been kept up all night by rowdy mm-hmm. uh occupants mm-hmm. in the hotel singing and playing and that's sort of an area where younger people would go and you mm-hmm. you see mm-hmm. um, younger people playing games um and they're just they're just kept up all night but they kind of have this back and forth the next day when they're out on the beach um on the walkway near the beach and they're saying um how i didn't sleep a wink i think the the mother says Mm -hmm. and and the father Mm -hmm. responds uh you you did you and you snored as well and then she laughs she's like did i and there's this um intimacy that exists without Mm -hmm. them having any physical contact almost throughout the whole film um, there's very little physical contact between most of the characters. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- there's the beauty of And she also has a moment where she gets a bit dizzy and um, they're about to leave and she's trying to get up and she, she becomes dizzy. The um, 
the her husband turns to her and seems to be you know concerned and asks kind of what's going on and then she's able to eventually get up and they walk away together down the walkway near the beach um kind of in file mm. behind uh she mm. behind him yeah. and it's just a, a beautiful image of com- kind of like intimacy and connection that uh is also well shot and um very simple and very minimal in many ways mm. but not not it still has like a, a power to it. I think that evokes yeah. a lot of motion and um, this closeness that we don't always, uh, we're not always privy to. And I, I, I enjoy that about Ozu. There are things that are withheld um, and he doesn't always show the moments that are, I think in Western cinema, key moments that you want to show, mm. like something happens that's a very dramatic event. He'll often kind of move past that or not have the characters express something that could be, um, we, we kind of find out secondhand indirectly about certain things that happen. And I yeah. think that's a really interesting way to, to make film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that gets at, so a word you just mentioned uh, is minimalism. And I think that that's something that I, I was really struck by too. The, so they're in Tokyo, but there's almost no shots of the city or like establishing shots. Like I would expect, you know, a city of this uh, shot of the skyline or something like that. Um, not that I don't know what the skyline looked like in the 50s at that point, um, but it's it's almost all the cameras always kept in these tight quarters and in in the home. It's a very domestic story, and the camera almost never moves. It's it's pretty much stationary. I think almost the whole time, and um, so it's it's like you understand the context that they're in this big city, and that that has a huge effect on the story and on the lives of the the grown children. But we stay in these intimate. intimate moments um it's almost all indoors as well there's that that shot or that scene out on the beach like you're talking about and then there's the scene on the hill that i mentioned earlier other than that i think almost all of this takes place just inside homes um and uh yeah so i think that that's that that minimal style does a a lot for the movie and i think i'm sure that's something that is going to come up in a minute because we're going to talk a little bit more about his style um and maybe this is a good transition into getting into that so uh, tell tell me about i guess um so yeah let's jump into ozu and and kind of what he's known for people he's influenced and the the style of his uh, filmmaking yeah i i think that um ozu has had a, a really a large impact on um filmmakers um around the world um um, throughout the last three or four decades. Um, his style was described by Paul Schrader, who wrote a book um, about the transcendental style um, as sort of transcendent. Um, and Sh- uh, Sh- Schrader uh, meant by that sort of maximizing the mystery of existence, I believe is how he mm-hmm. described it. Um, a transcendental filmmaker will use often what are these kind of devices to show characters and development of plot and story in a way that are almost kind of dramatic devices that are used. And the transcendental artist or filmmaker will sort of drain them in a way out of their, um, uh, it's about everydayness. And I think Mm -hmm. the, the best way to describe it is to present life as it is in the kind of quotidian of yeah. mm-hmm. the repetitive way of being. And uh, if you notice how the characters greet each other, it seems to be like, hello, it's a beautiful day today. Oh, it will mm. be hot today. Yeah. Oh, commenting on the weather. Um, very um, mundane. What could be considered yeah. yeah, mundane communication. And But in this, we see a real life. And mm. with that for many people at this time, particularly in Japan and even today in America, there is a lot of small talk. There are um, these routines and repetitions most mm-hmm. people have in life. But in that, we can find um, we can find what is um, what life is about, and mm-hmm. I think that's really important um, to show that there doesn't need to be a ton of uh, dramatic effect or mm-hmm. um, a pushing pushing you towards uh, an emotion or pushing you towards a thought. Um, that's incredibly contrived and just um, overbearing. And I think Ozu's been, been said to like um, showing instead of telling. Yeah. So there's this, he, he kind of just shows a scene and allows the characters, as you said, many of the shots are interior shots and they are rectangular usually or even square. Mm. And um, 
Ozu is well known for using, I think, a 55 or sorry, 50 millimeter lens uh, called the tatami uh, shot with a Japanese traditional floor mat. So it, it's um, maybe a few feet or even less uh, off the ground. And it allows uh, the audience to see the characters stand up, sit down and move side to side, seeing their whole body usually. And the depth of field, uh, the traditional Japanese home, uh, you're able to see characters in the foreground in the midground and in the background, um, all aligned in certain ways. Mm. And the movements within those spaces are really interesting. Also, Ozu um, does not really care for um, <laughs> the um, keeping the camera in a way that seems like logical for, uh, I think, for contemporary Western cinema. Mm. You'll see a shot of a character from one angle and then the camera will be completely on the opposite side of the body and the character has now moved to uh, the opposite side of the screen. Mm. He kind of uses 360, 360 degree spacing uh, for camera movement rather than the 180 that many filmmakers use. Um, so you don't really, you see a shot of a character talking, then it cuts to another character talking in a way where the camera is just moving. He's just picking up the camera and moving it in other locations uh, while filming. So I think that's um, an interesting perspective. And um, yeah, the, the, the style is, is minimal and it is focused on the everyday and within limits. Um, I think that's where Ozu does some of his best work and his actors. He, um, he would have them retake scenes 20 30 40 some 60 times mm. and the scenes sometimes would require no dialogue <laughs> they would <Yeah. laughs> just be um sewing something and then gulping or swallowing very hard <laughs> and then uh looking a certain way wow and uh one of the actresses uh that uh, had worked with him said that she she did this and eventually um he said okay that's good and she realized she was getting frustrated but eventually she realized he wanted her to take her mind off of the focus on doing the mm. sewing and mm. just uh, act in a way that was almost like she was embodying what she was supposed to be doing in the film and, and mm. kind of lose sight of, um, okay, I'm acting in this, I'm doing this thing. It's like, okay, it's become almost like automatic. Mm. And I think that's the way Ozu sort of directed. He was, he was very meticulous about the decor, the interior, uh, the, the, the design. He would actually look through the camera, which for a lot of, cinematographers directors of photography as well like that's a no-no they don't want the director just like mm. all of a sudden jumping and looking into a camera um mm. he would do that often and he would he would control almost every facet of the films and uh he wanted the focus to be very sp specific and very um controlled and mm. um i think he did a, a really great job at at sort of focusing our attention on small details and not on the waiting for this massive um, thing to happen or that, you know, dragging us to this plot point. It's mm -hmm. sort of unfolding in time that is allowed to breathe. And I think that's really uh, a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And my only observation would be that I think that, um, so I, I just became aware of who Paul Schrader was a few years ago with, um, First Reformed, the movie he directed, and uh, then kind of heard some interviews with him and learned that he was very interested in and had been a scholar on this transcendental style and written this book about it. And uh, that's actually how I first learned of Ozu and was like, wow, I need to dig into some of that. But I remember something he said in an interview once, because he basically, he'd made several movies, but he hadn't quite employed the transcendental style himself until First Reformed. Uh, and so he was talking about doing that. And he said that one of the things he wanted to employ was boredom, actually. Like, how can you um, just, yeah, show this mundane life? And in and, and doing so, whenever something a little bit bigger does happen, it stands out a little more, or it hits hits a little bit more emotionally because you've been drawn into this. So there is something at the end of Tokyo Story that um, is a, a little bit of a bigger plot point that, I, that we're not going to spoil, but um, it, it became much more emotional, I think, because we'd seen these people in just their mundane, everyday lives. And uh, if you see in First Reformed, I think that's a similar thing. You see Ethan Hawke's character uh, doing his basically boring day job that he doesn't even like that much. And then there's a few really big things that happen and, and they're uh, they stand out um, uh, because of that uh, that kind of contrast. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Like the resonance of anything that happens mm -hmm. um, that would could happen in, in many movies, like um, uh, a, a divorce or um, 
you know, an overdose or a death or a marriage, something like that will hit much harder in Ozu films because it's showing life. And as in all our lives, we are, mm. most of us are not in, undergoing dramatic events daily. So, um, and large events daily. So when they do happen, they are very precious to us and they are very meaningful to us. But in film, because we're watching something that's, you know, usually around two hours or so, um, they're trying to take us on this journey. So many films have these it, things start off a little slow and then they ramp up very quickly. But everyday life is not present in many films. But you're right, the sense of boredom is important. The sense of the routine, the repetitive mm-hmm. is really, really important. But to like to show it and to value it is um, is really amazing because mm-hmm. it can become to a point, if not done well, where the audience loses focus and is mm. completely uninterested in what's going on. Right. But I think Ozu requires the attention of the audience, but not to a level where we are sitting for 40 minutes just watching like an Andy Warhol film and nothing's yeah. happening, someone's <laughs> sleeping or something. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that's that's really important. Things are happening. There are details that are important that are being shown, but doing it in an unpushy or unfussy way. Mm, yeah. um, I think that's really good. That's a good way to put that. And, and yeah, and so doing such a minimal thing like that, uh, it also, I think, serves to make it feel more universal. So, um, I watched, um, a thing on the, so I watched this movie on the Criterion channel, which, uh, if you're into these kind of movies and you're not subscribing, I recommend it. It's really great. They have a ton of, ton of, uh, art house movies there, including a lot of Ozu films. Um, and they had a, a special feature with a, a Jamaican director. Um, and he was just talking about why he loves this movie. Uh, and he said he, he watched it when he was young and he was like, well, how is this movie from, you know, 60 years ago from a Japanese, an old Japanese man perfectly capturing my relationship with my grandmother. And I think that that kind of gets at the universality of, um, the feelings and the relationships here that it really does. It can feel so familiar, even though it's in a really different context, which I've kind of mentioned on the podcast before. One of my favorite things about watching movies from a different culture or from a different time period is that you feel those commonalities and you suddenly feel more connected to uh, the rest of humanity. It really can be a really spiritual thing. And maybe that's part of what's meant by transcendental, uh, when we're talking about movies like this is that it tells a really small story seemingly, but it transcends that and can be a much bigger thing. It also reminds me. So previously, Andrew, you were on the podcast to discuss the movie, uh, Synecdoche, New York, which, uh, is a very different movie. Um, but one of the things I think we kind of discussed there was, um, movies like that that can uh the way it made me feel was like it's i feel like i'm really small and i'm just a part of a really big universe but i'm also important it makes me feel small and big at the same time like the experience of one person can be a really important thing and that movie did that well i think this movie and kind of indirectly does that um and looking ahead to the other movies we're going to discuss i know that at least one that i've seen has very strongly gives me that same feeling and we'll kind of get to that when we get there but um, i'll be interested to watch as we go uh, through these other movies if um we we have a similar sort of transcendent uh, feeling with some of them but um yeah i think this movie's really great and um it because it, it does that it, it kind of uh, hits that universal place that it's something that's really great to to dig into so i'm so glad we're um, discussing it here uh yeah so we've mentioned that ozu is uh has been very influential do you know some uh some big names of people that he's influenced in kind of more modern times Yes, uh, Ozu has uh, had influence on contemporary directors like Paul Dano, actors Michael Cera, mm. um, Lindsay Anderson, uh, of course, Paul Schrader. Mm. Um, and I believe that uh, Vim Vendors uh, made um, a documentary, Tokyo Go, uh, about Ozu. Mm. And um, it's yeah, really an amazing documentary as well. But Ozu's reach seems to be Europe, European, European cinema, American cinema, Asian cinema, mm. and um, has just had a had a wide impact on um, films. Um, and I, I think that it's it's really telling that his simple style was able to still influence filmmakers who use inc- you know a vast variety mm-hmm. of styles but they still have um 
this sense of what he meant to cinema and mm. the effects that he had on how to tell a story. Uh, Paul Dano um, recently said that when he watched Ozu, he he was surprised that you can make films in this way. You could make films about everyday life and kind of limit the the amount of I guess massive happenings and just mm. focus on the re- repetition of daily life and the the kind of small aspects and preciousness of life and I think that's really amazing and I'm glad his work is continuing to have to have influence over the decades um, and we're seeing that still. Mm, that's a great quote from Dano. That's definitely a sense that that I got from this and it's uh, yeah, it's great to hear that that's been so influential uh, going forward. Uh, yeah, what else? Yeah. Uh, do you have any other thoughts about kind of the style or, or Ozu himself or, or anything else you want to mention? I think there's um, Mano no Awara. Um, it's like a, um, what he deploys at times, this sympathetic sadness, this resigned sadness, kind of what I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Um, there's this kind of a knowing and calm serenity about mm-hmm. the uncertainty of life that mm-hmm. is present. Uh, Vanessa actually commented that it's the emotions are so private and contained, but there's this vividness beneath them. The characters do a great job that through their gesturing, through their movements and um, Shushu Ryu, uh, the father often says the same kind of to us, to me, <laughs> it sounds like uh, mm, something like this. This is the slight variations of this sound that signifying many things. It seems mm. this recognition, this questioning, this, um, just a slight sort of tone that he's using when he makes a sound, and I don't believe it's a word, um, carries such significance. Mm, yeah. um, and, and a look from uh, a, a sibling to a sibling really says a lot. Um, so there's not a need. I mean, in the film, there are several sequences for longer dialogue, but often in the film, the dialogue is kept, as we've said, um, light sort of small talk mm-hmm. or very minimal and I but when when things are expressed they're often nonverbal yeah um, mm-hmm. and when the when when something is said there is importance to it when it's something that's not just small talk when it's expressing um, at times uh, as we've uh, as we've kind of talked about between the husband and the wife the older couple mm-hmm. um, there's this understanding and this the smiling that happens or the questioning that kind of happens with just their gestures or their annoyance or their frustrations um by setting up or moving in a in a certain way it's it's really i think impactful um i i did want to say that um i think ozu is he's known as the most japanese of uh japanese directors uh but i i think because of his style and um their in Paul Schrader's book, The Transcendental Style, he does speak about the one corner painting. Um, a um, Japanese painter, um, I think several centuries ago, would create paintings in which he would only paint a corner of a canvas and the rest of the canvas would be blank. But um, in that one, the the blank canvas was actually a major part of the, the work. Mm-hmm. And Ozu, I believe... Um, is working with silences and mm-hmm. what was called mm-hmm. codas. So these still lives and these um, these moments when we're when you said earlier about going to Tokyo, we didn't see a lot of okay the skyline or we're in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. But he did show like I think in, an industrial yeah, plant. Like I actually noted stacks. that. Yeah, you see this industrialization a few times. Go ahead. Yeah. Right, and I and also these linen. You see these like uh, shirts at different times mm-hmm. or this still shot of hallways. Um, that's, I think, very powerful that sort of allows these pauses. It's a mm-hmm. pause, but it's also like a um, emphasis on time passing and the context and the environment in which we're in now. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I think it allows us to kind of absorb what is happening and also to to give a bit of reflection to where we're at in the film, but also um, space to think. And I, I really enjoy those moments. And I think they're mm-hmm. just as important as the dialogue at times that's going on or, um, the plot points that may be appearing at times. I think those pauses are, are, are very essential. And as well, I think he uses temporal, uh, ellipses, uh, where he's sort of like, 
we're going from one point to another and we're not seeing anything that's like Mm -hmm. the journey by train. We're just seeing you're here, we see a still shot, these codas, and then we're now moving to interiors in a different city. Um, These things are really interesting to me and I think they... They can be powerful because it allows us to think, you know, what has happened, what's going on, and also to pay attention that we're we're there present with what is happening. Um, so, yeah, I, I really enjoy the style. I enjoy the consistent uh, uh, cinematography, the the square, the rectangular shots. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there he I think uses a tracking shot maybe twice in the film, uh, and it, I think both of them come when the um the older couple have been kicked out sort of by their do- uh, of their daughter's mm-hmm. hair salon and you see them kind of preparing to figure out where they go next and it reminds me of this film is sort of based off of in some ways a leo mccary film from 1937 uh make way for tomorrow an american oh, film interesting um that is um a really beautiful like post depression film uh the the economic depression in the united states it mm-hmm. is a very moving and well-made film and the older couple has this moment where they're kind of walking side by side not sure what will happen next not sure mm-hmm. you know the next steps of their lives and it's um it's very precious and very powerful i mm-hmm. i think but ozu does use those tracking shots um very rarely um but i think for good purpose but i do like the consistency in which he shoots and allowing us to just be almost like a stage. It seems like each shot for me Mm -hmm. is sort of a stage that we're entering and we allow, we see whatever he's allowing to happen within Mm -hmm. that, within that frame. And then we move to something else. But, um, yeah, it's, it's very meditative. I feel, uh, yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I I just want to say that uh, when those camera tracking shots do finally happen, as you mentioned, it's when they've just been yeah more or less kicked out. They even say at one point, I guess we're really, homeless now or something like that and um the camera suddenly moving you suddenly feel this untethered like they don't know what's going to happen like they they are a little bit lost in that moment Mm. yeah um speaking of what you just mentioned about sort of the 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 pauses that it would take to show that industrialized city because yeah it doesn't show a ton of shots of the city like i would expect as i mentioned but it does um show that which i think gives the sense that, yeah, this is like the new culture, the new, uh, they, they say a couple times something about the life moves really fast in the city or something like that. It's too fast for us old people, so, something along those lines. Uh, but yeah, I, I had a, the word popped into my head that it's kind of poetic cinema. Um, and someone, actually my sister-in-law, a few, you know, like last year, I think, asked me about movies that I would consider poetic. And it really made me stop and think about what does that maybe mean? And I thought about like the way you read a novel versus the way you read a poem and is that I think pauses is a big part of that. When you're reading a poem, you're going to stop and consider how does that connect? What does that mean more than you would with a novel or a narrative story? So I think this um, can be considered poetic cinema for that reason, that it it allows you those pauses, as you mentioned, to stop and uh, and consider that. So I think that's that's an interesting thing. But yeah, what other yeah. what other things do you have uh, to say about Tokyo Story? Vanessa and I spoke about the scene between the mother and then the daughter-in-law when the parents are sort of kicked out of um, the hair salon of their mm-hmm. daughter, and they mm-hmm. go um, in separate directions. The mother goes uh, to the daughter-in-law's home, mm-hmm. and she is not very um, like economically, you know, do, she's not doing great yeah, um, financially. Very small apartment, and, yeah. Right, and she's I think sharing a, a kitchen sink and probably a, a bathroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. um, the the communication they have I think is very intimate and beautiful mm-hmm. um, and honest, and um, it seems to me that the daughter-in-law really wants to care for and um, show uh, affection for um, her her mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law thinks that's amazing, it's very nice, but she also wants her to live her life and Mm -hmm. is encouraging her to, please, it would make me happy if you pursued, if you wanted to get married or, you know, move on in your life and do something that may not be part of this family, our family, that's mm-hmm. fine. You know, our my son has been dead for eight years and, or, you know, missing in action, mm-hmm. probably dead. So, um, and there's this recognition of her, this 
sense of wanting to hold on to this, uh, the daughter-in-law, uh, mm-hmm. this past where she may even feel that I think earlier in the film, the father and the mother speak to her about uh, their son and said, you know, our son was kind of, you know, a bit, you know, he, he you know, things could have been difficult for you, it seems like. Mm. And she kind of acknowledged that. But then yeah. she said, I miss those difficult times. Mm. Um, so there's this nostalgia for, for for being in a relationship with him. But she also seems to be hoping for the future. And one of my favorite scenes uh, two of my favorite scenes happened at, near the end of the film when there were conversations between her and the uh, husband uh, and sort of the expression of gratitude he gives for the care she mm-hmm. has provided for mm-hmm. he and his wife. Yeah. And I think that's really amazing. And uh, actually, he gives her a watch, which um, mm-hmm. which was a, a family kind of uh, a watch, a family heirloom in a way, mm-hmm. I, I suppose. Yeah. Um, maybe not heirloom, but a family um, object that meant a lot to uh, mm-hmm. to he and his wife, and it's given to her, and it, it signifies in some way to me that you please live your life and be happy. He even tells her that I want you to be happy, but you will always have mm-hmm. you know us with you in some way, and we may never even see you again because where they live is so far from Tokyo, and she's working, um, so yeah. it, it it may never. They may never see each other again. And it's this thing that she holds on to uh, that I think is a, a very beautiful uh, token in a way. And um, have you seen The Hours, the film? The Hours? I'm not. No, I've not seen it. Okay. Um, Vanessa showed it to me. And uh, in the end uh, of the film, Virginia says, The Hours, always the years, always the hours. So it's this mm-hmm. uh, sense that the time that they shared and that they had was so precious. And Mm. I think that's shown throughout the film, these generational conflicts that occur, these differences in like living situation, Mm. um, you know, modern Japan at the time, Tokyo, I mean, and then a rural community or a small town, there are big differences in lifestyle and economics Mm -hmm. and culture, but to, 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 to value the time and to connect with the time that you have with your, your loved ones and those Mm. who really mean something to you, is I think very, yeah, very powerful. And um, that kind of relates to the second, uh, the other uh, conversation I mentioned, mm. where she then talks to the youngest um, daughter of the family, um, yeah. her sister-in-law. And she, the sister-in-law is really upset by how her um, siblings have treated her parents and kind of been um, rude in ways and also just like neglectful of them mm-hmm. and not really respectful Um and she she's upset. She's very upset. And she's like, I never want to become that way. And, I, you know, they, they were very selfish. Mm-hmm. And uh, the daughter-in-law, played by Satsuko Hara, she says that, um, well, you know, you're, you're maybe – when you get the age of your sister, you may realize there's a lot going on. You have your own life and people mm-hmm. change over time. There, mm-hmm. there are – these things that happen to you and you change. And then the younger sister says, well, you're not, you're here and you're doing, you know, being Mm -hmm. considerate. And, um, she's like, will you change? And she's like, yeah, maybe despite my best effort, I may change and Mm -hmm. I am maybe changing. And we notice that in some ways she may be changing in, in the sense of like maybe moving forward in her life, uh, something else. And I think that's very powerful because she recognizes she doesn't want to pass judgment. And yes, she realizes in some way that like the, the younger sister is correct. Some of the, the other siblings are acting a bit selfish at times and, and rude and not considerate, but they also have their own experiences and their own, uh, how they were raised mm-hmm. because actually the father used to drink um, previously. Mm-hmm. And so the older sister references that quite often. I think it made it very difficult. I think you referenced uh, the drinking. They eventually, mm-hmm. uh, the father and the his buddy end up at her salon drunk and yeah. unexpectedly mm-hmm. in the middle of the night mm-hmm. and she has to deal with that and it's it's said also that the father has stopped drinking now that the youngest daughter had been born so for like mm-hmm. you know 15 18 years or something he hasn't been drinking so her her relationship with her father is different than her sister's and there's mm-hmm. this i really like how the daughter-in-law um um, is engaging and kind of, uh, saying that, you know, we can all change and we have to be aware of that and not pass judgment. But there is this sense that she wants to retain this connection and this, this, um, care, even though things life will be going on and her life will change. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like to communication the, those conversations she has with the father and the youngest sister. So yeah, it's, I really like Ozu and I really think that 
the the minimalism and the, just the controlled formalism of the work allows these beautiful structures or these beautiful um, experiences to happen within these maybe to some rigid structures, these sort of very controlled environments. Mm-hmm. I think beautiful uh, acting can occur and beautiful compositions um, when done really well. It's it's um, it's sort of like, I guess, um, like writing poetry and formally like mm-hmm. a sonnet or a who within like if you're really good at it if you have these rigid structures uh you can make wonderful things within those structures mm-hmm. and it kind of aids in the the create um yeah. the creative yeah. experience and i think i really like that yeah having those limits can help you to innovate and and that that's proven really true in, in any creative work i've done before so i think that's really that's a good point. Um, I want to mention one last thing as we kind of wrap up, and that's um, in that same conversation between the younger daughter and the daughter-in-law, like I think directly after the lines you referenced, um, the younger daughter says, uh, isn't life disappointing? And the yes. the daughter-in-law, just with this kind of wry smile on her face, says, yes, it is, but she's still smiling. And um, it's, I, th- I think that was, a, that was at the sort of the crux of, you know, this, um, there's sadness, there's beauty, all of that tied together in that moment. I was like, that's, that's really something. And then the performance of that line is really great as well. So yeah, I, I love that. And I really loved, uh, finally watching this movie. Um, any, any final thoughts before we kind of wrap this up? Um, no, only, I, I guess only that, um, it was a really a pleasure to go back and watch this film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I watched it to, um, two full times now. And then like almost the third, I, I almost watched it um, again. I watched a considerable part of it. Mm. And, but before this, I hadn't, the last time I had watched it had been several years. Mm. Um, and I, and many years, I think, but it's, um, it's very beautiful and touching and that it kind of sort of my relationship with my uh, grandmother um, on my mother's side, um, what reminded me a lot of mm. the, um, the, um, the uh the mother in the film and it's uh it's very very moving to see sort of um the relationship that yeah the daughter-in-law has with her and i i feel connected to that in in, in some way not like me as the daughter-in-law but just that character of mm-hmm. the, the mother uh is is really powerful for me and to see to see care taken um in the film with such nuance is uh, very beautiful. And I think, like you said, the line of life is disappointing. She smiles and says, yes, it is. But then she goes on to say, please visit me uh, Mm -hmm. in Tokyo if you're there. And we can believe her. She's incredibly genuine. Mm -hmm. She wants to her to visit and she will like host her if she visits. Um, It's like this balance between this acceptance of the inevitable change that happens in life, sometimes good, sometimes bad for the individual with the choice to act in ways that like show care and show yeah. uh, connection. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an amazing feature of his, of his films. And um, lastly, um, I believe a filmmaker had said that kindness first, then justice are a great, mm-hmm. a, a large part of uh, Ozu films, mm-hmm. kindness first, then justice. And I really think that's um really powerful so uh, yeah uh, yeah yeah that's really great you definitely see that embodied in the in the daughter-in-law and um her even in the face of shuck she fully understands the social slights that are happening and and the ways that these parents are being uh mistreated or, or uh, not treated well enough um but she is the most gracious person and the kindest to everyone around her and i think that's that's really great uh, yeah that's that's wonderful well, I think we can call it a, a, an episode. Thank you so much for joining me, Andrew, for this one. I can't wait for next time, which we're going to talk about The Seventh Seal, which I've seen once before and, and really connected with it. I can't wait to see it again and uh, kind of jot down my favorite lines. It's a dialogue-heavy movie, but also has a lot of, I think, symbolism and uh, 
some kind of iconic things in it as well. So we will get into that next time. Um, but thanks so much for joining us. Uh, and, and we'll talk to you then. Um, we uh, appreciate you being here. All right. Thank you, Andrew. And that will do it for this episode. If you want to support Art House Garage, you can leave us a rating and a review on iTunes or whatever podcast app you're using. And you can keep up with Art House Garage on social media. We are at Art House Garage on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Letterboxd. Uh, you can also find video reviews and YouTube uh, sorry, on YouTube, as well as reviews and events, uh, event coverage over at the blog at arthousegarage.com. You can also email me if you have any thoughts or feedback, andrew at arthousegarage.com. And that will do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, keep it snob free.